Hey there, my name is Louis Colbertolo and I am trying my best to get a PhD in food science at the University of Guelph. Along the way, I meet great people from many walks of life with expertise in fascinating sectors of science. And some of these people are even tolerable enough to sit down and have a cup of coffee with. This show is all about talking to students and young professionals about what science they know and how we see it in our everyday lives. Today, I'm talking with Cameron Davidson Pilon, who was one of my lab mates at the University of Guelph. Cameron occupied a desk for a year next to mine, and he didn't keep a single personal item, not even a pen, at his desk for a whole year. This blew my mind because my desk is cluttered with an assortment of garbage and mementos at any given time. Either way, today we are going to talk about artificial intelligence and learn more about image recognition, deep learning, and if slash when robots will become our coworkers. We certainly don't know everything, and that's why you're listening to We Know Some Stuff, the scientists of tomorrow talking today. Cameron, how are you doing today? Great. Thanks, Luigi, for having me. Appreciate I- being here. I'm happy to have you. I'm so excited to have you uh, with us here today. Could you do us a favor and just walk us through your educational background? Sure. So I'm from the area. I, I grew up in Guelph and I uh, went to do my high school there. I later went to Laurier, did a undergrad in financial math, uh, then moved down the street to UW and did a master's of stats there. Uh, that was in 2012. I also did a stint in in Moscow in this, this math in Moscow program. Uh, fast forwarding eight years, I did two semesters at U of G food science department. All right. That brings you here. I had no idea. I have known you for a year that you spent time in Moscow. Wow. Wow. All right. So we today are going to talk about artificial intelligence. Uh, what, what do you know about artificial intelligence? I know, I know there's, the public perception of artificial intelligence or, or AI, mm-hmm. and then there's the background kind of academic industrial version of artificial intelligence. Um, the public is is you know the public definition of AI. It's it's always has always has the background of zeros and ones and robots and these like futuristic cyborgs, mm-hmm. uh, usually like working with some UI. Um, but in truth, the background or the, the kind of hidden side or academic side of AI, it's making progress, but it's much more slowly than what the public thinks. Oh, that's that's super interesting. So we are not at a point where robots are going to take over the world. We're not ready for that. Very far away from that. Really? How far, far away? Do you have an estimate? Oh, I, no. I just, just, <laughs> my only estimate is, is, is longer than today. Like, longer than uh, today. Yeah. You really can't predict that. Uh, so... That notion is is termed artificial general intelligence. So that that's when it, uh, uh, the AI is smart enough that it can interact with humans flawlessly. Plus plus, it can do more than that. It could even edit its own source code to improve itself. So that's that's where you get into the singularity uh, type scenarios, and uh, that's like that's AGI, which is very far away when most. People talk about AI, at least like practically, industrially, uh, in, ac- in academia. It's targeted at specific applications. So it's image recognition. Like that, that's an AI. Um, image recognition is not going to rule the world. So we're still very far away from, from AGI, but 
AI applied to images, AI applied to speech, like that's really making progress. All right, so well, let's back up just a little bit. Where and how is AI used in imaging? Sure, so it's the, the, the inflection point was in around 2010. Uh, the University of Toronto, they would run a competition, an image recognition competition, uh, every year, and people would submit their, their algorithms. But these algorithms were, were pretty crude. They would look for the, the image recognition competition was basically classifying like cats or boats or, or uh, trains or cars. And they were classifying these, them from a blurry picture or like what? Um... Sure, yeah, to make it more clear, it's like uh, there's an image and the algorithm has to detect what's in that image. Okay. So is there a cat in this image? Yes or no. Is there a dog in this image? Yes or no. So historically, the algorithms were almost, uh, like I'll say, hard-coded. You know, they, they would have a train algorithm that would look for, you know, is, is there a piston? Is there a uh, steam engine? Um, but the, these features were hard to, because, because images can, you know, or a train image can be upside down, it can be sideways, it could be under the carriage. There's so many ways to represent a train these hard-coded algorithms weren't very good at, at picking up uh, is, is the train or a cat or a dog, mm-hmm. and then multiply that by the number of categories. However, in 2010, uh, a team at U of T, they introduced a model, and it was the start of, of using deep learning, which we'll get into, I imagine. Of course. Uh, they applied this deep learning algorithm, which do, does away with all the hard-coded feature abstraction so mm-hmm. instead of the, the authors having to code in like oh this is this is a feature of a train the algorithm could learn what a train looked like it could learn what a cat looked like uh, anyways the the results of the competition was they, this this new algorithm just blew away the rest it was a, a massive step forward and since then since 2010 it's only 10 years they've made enormous progress on this kind of idea where instead of telling the algorithm what a train looks like you give the algorithm lots of images of trains and cats and dogs, and it learns what a train looks like or learns what a cat looks like. So there, there's some interesting mathematics behind how it learns what a train or a cat looks like. Um, it, it involves a really complicated search. It's We have mm-hmm. enough computing power that we can search through enormous space and find out what a train might look like or what a cat might look like. So a few things, actually. Uh... I think that we all have actually experienced kind of what an AI does just uh, to a little bit in our own lives uh, through image analysis, like whenever you are on a website and it asks for you to verify that you're a human. And you have to do that CAPTCA phrase, or you have to choose where the traffic light is, or does this image have cars? So ultimately, robots aren't stealing our jobs. We're taking jobs from the robots. We... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I have a less optimistic point of view. On okay, that. fair enough, uh, fair enough. Just to add to that, I think Google did a really smart thing where uh, they wanted like those image captures uh, where you have to identify street lights or, or cars. That was a great, great idea to get a, get a huge data, training data set mm-hmm. on what a car looks like or what a, a street light looks like. And they've essentially they put this dating, training data set into their algorithm and the model learns what a car looks like or a streetlight looks like. It was a really clever way to 
get millions or billions of, of training examples. Right. So, so now that's the real interesting part is that they're using our inputted information as like their database. We're providing them a service by doing this. But also, how does it know if I'm not a robot? Couldn't a robot make more or less the same discernment that I can? If they don't, they don't have that image. They don't know it's a traffic light until I say it's a traffic light. Right. So I think what they're actually doing is the act of you selecting those images is the, the behavior trigger that says you're a human or a robot. That's so crazy. The actual, yeah, the actual <laughs> image selection doesn't really matter. But how you select those images, how long it takes your cursor to move across the screen, or how, how, uh, how jerky your cursor is, that's actually what, what they determine is a human or robot. That, that honestly is blowing my mind. I had absolutely no idea how it worked. I thought they just had a kind of an idea of what a traffic light was, and then they put that in. Probably initially they did that, mm -hmm. but they realized, wait, this is not really working very well, or uh, like we can improve this using this more behavioral uh, trigger algorithm versus the selection. Wow, that is, that is so cool stuff. So, so let's dip into the deep waters of deep learning. Sure. You mentioned earlier that instead of saying, is this a carburetor? No. Is this an engine? No. Is this a, you know, a carriage? No. And it goes on throughout this list. But now it is, okay, we have a million pictures of a dog. Will one, you know, will this unknown image then be able to be sourced as a dog based on the one million images that we have of dogs? Is that more or less what's happening with uh, deep learning? Yes, I would, I would look at deep learning as uh, a stack of layers. And this is how a lot of AI practitioners think about it as well. So think about you have layers, uh, sequential layers that kind of at the, at the start is the image of the dog. At the end is a yes or no saying this is a dog or not a dog. So at the very first layer, right next to the image, that layer's job is to, is to look for lines. Sounds kind of silly right now, but okay. it's just going to look for, for lines. The next layer is going to look for intersections of lines. So then you start getting corners or curved lines. The next layer's job is to look for uh, like maybe closed, uh, closed lines, like a circle or something. Mm -hmm. And as we get further and further up the layers, and this is why it's called deep learning, because there's many layers, oh, yeah. you get more and more uh, abstracted features. So perhaps at the end, it's looking for, because you're, you're stacking up all these layers, it's looking for a dog's ear. And that's very specific. Um, or it's looking for the dog's paw or something. Um, and then based on that, based on uh, the image coming in, it can kind of say like, yes or no. Like, is there a dog's paw? Is there a dog's ear in there? The important thing is that a human's not crafting that final dog's paw layer or, or uh, dog's ear layer. The computer's doing all that. The algorithm is searching this parameter space and finding out um, or finding a layer that looks for dog's paws or ears or whatever, whatever the algorithm is actually doing. So that, that's, that's how the deep learning, uh, we call it the, like feature abstraction works. You sort of build up smaller and smaller or more fundamental features into what a car looks like or like a, a sort of car detecting layer or a train detecting layer. And at the end it says, Yes, with probability you know, 0.3, and no with probability 0.7. All right, so, so that's an uh, interesting point. As we go through all of these layers, 
the uh, the ability to guess correctly gets better. Is that true? Yeah, I, I, I would say so. That, that, that's correct. Um, kind of like a, a interesting side effect of, of this kind of model stacking or, or layering or sort of like layering of, of layers is you can actually cut your model at some point in that mm-hmm. in those layers. So, and this was this was a, this is very common today, but this is one of the coolest things that sort of came out in the early 2010s, where big companies would train really big image recognition models. So they would take like Google would take all their image data and feed into their models and they get a really good image classification algorithm, a deep learning classification algorithm. They could then use the entire model for their products, but they could also like chop their model in half. So just say use the first uh, hundred layers or so. Mm-hmm. Um, these layers are really good at detecting lines and circles and, and sort of general purpose images or general purpose image features. Uh, so they would take that first half and apply it to a different problem. They'd apply it to uh, like a different different Im- image recognition problem, say like handwritten digits or uh, like face detection or something. So they could take their model, split it in half, and reuse parts of their model. So you don't have to keep training a model over and over again. Um, you can save save parameters or save compute as well. And they would share these models. So there's open source models where they take mm. Um, everything but the last layer, and give you like the, that first ninety-five percent, and you can do whatever you want with that model. And you just have the freedom to use it however you want. Yeah, it, it, it's been a change, I think, in in the uh, computer science and stats community to instead of sharing data sets, you're now sharing these like almost incomplete or complete models. Mm-hmm. Um, they like you know here's here's half my model. It's really good at detecting lines and circles, or, or you know, cars, or, or trucks, or something, uh, and you can use that for your application. So there's a lot of open source uh, happening in in uh, AI. Yeah, I mean that uh, you get the community uh, all is kind of chipping in, and that ultimately makes the entire uh, world of image recognition better because people are building off of each other. I'm assuming no one really has to start from ground zero anymore, do they? You can choose to take an existing model and apply mm-hmm. it to your application, and it'll work pretty well. It, it, it's a different domain. Let's say the model was trained on pets, but you want to apply it to wild animals. It'll do okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, not perfect, but okay. You could go back from scratch and you know rebuild the entire model, and it'll do better, but you might be satisfied with the okay version. There's also the commoditization of a lot of deep learning, specifically the deep learning technologies. So Google and Facebook and Microsoft, uh, Uber as well, they've all open sourced their own deep learning technologies, how they build their own models. And because it's open source, a kid from around the world, any kid from around the world could download this program if they have a good data set, which you can find a lot of good data sets online, they could try their own um, models. They could, I mean, the, I, I described the layering, so the sequential layering of models, it could sort of branch in different manners. So the, the kid or the student or, or the, the, grad, the grad student, they could just pick up one of these models, try their own design, try their own data sets, and get a brand new, possibly even better model than the original. So it's really easy for anyone to sort of, as long as you know some programming, some stats, and and there's lots of good open source or uh, online resources for that, they could 
jump right in and, and try to beat the big guys at uh, at their own at their own like image recognition task or something. Wow, that's like entrepreneurship in its prime. Like you have these resources all over, and you could just be some guy, you know, some some sixteen year old in your parents' basement building up the next you know biggest app. Yeah, and, and, and you've seen that. There was a, I was thinking about this, it was like a 17-year-old in the UK, and he built, what was it called? It was like Minify or something, and all it was was, it took a news report, like yeah. an, an art news article, condensed it down to a paragraph, and that was it. That's all it did. <laughs> That's uh, the best way to this, do news, yeah, right? Yeah, right? It, it, was, it was pretty good, and this was maybe like six, seven years ago, uh, but Yahoo, I think it was Yahoo, Bought him for like thirty million dollars. Yeah, it there he's <laughs> he's got and, thirty and million like, dollars now. He just he plugged and played open source technologies and wow. did pretty well. Wow. Now, could this app be used for online recipes? You know, you ever go for the online recipes and, and the person has to tell you their entire life story yeah. before <laughs> yeah. you get to the ingredients? Yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, it was a cold summer day when I tried. No, no I don't want any of that. Like, get straight yeah. down to that. Making the world a better place by just cutting out content. I love it. I yeah, love yeah. it. That, that. I'm sure that exists somewhere. Someone's done that. <laughs> I'm going to have to look for it. I, I will. So that's super interesting. So we, we got AI. We got image recognition. That's like a very easy sort of uh, to grasp idea, I would think. Um, what else AI is out there that probably the common person has no idea that is controlled by AI? More and more are we seeing AI-generated content. So this oh. is... A bit more advanced, or a bit more like new or novel technologies, but it's becoming uh, becoming bigger. It's AI generating art, or or mm-hmm. um, AI generating written word for the internet, uh, and that's where you get these spam bots, and you have you know bots on Twitter just spamming the same thing over and over again, or, or novel things over and over again. Um, you have there was this great website that I shared with you previously and it's uh, it's this person does not exist.com yes so all one word this person does not exist.com and mm-hmm. if you go to it you'll be presented with a photo of a human but that person actually doesn't exist that it never did never did it's completely artificially generated you'll be blown away at how much detail and how, how realistic this, this human looks. It looks like a Facebook profile shot or like it looks like a headshot from like a, a model. Um, but they don't exist. So AI is now able to generate these fake-looking profile mm-hmm. pictures. So imagine that combined with AI-generated content and you have a pretty convincing-looking Twitter profile yeah. that would uh, evade most like careful eyes. Mm-hmm. You have to be pretty clever to find like any faults. So, so as as they create content, is this kind of like the theory behind you know you put a, a hundred monkeys in a room with a hundred typewriters and they'll come up with a, a masterpiece? It's it's interesting. So, I'll talk about the AI generated written word. Yeah, I think I think there was some news recently. It was last week, so uh, late May. Uh, a group in the Bay Area. Their name is um, OpenAI. Okay. They, uh, they 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 try to do all their AI open source in the open. They're kind of nonprofit, kind of profit. A little bit. Uh, yeah, but uh, they they train state of the art 
uh, written language model. Mm -hmm. So it's called like an NLP, Natural Language Processing Model, okay. and it's designed to generate text. Like they built this model to generate text. Now, when I work with my models, they're more like, um, they're not deep learning. I might have 10 parameters. I might get crazy and have like 100 parameters, mm -hmm. which are basically unknowns that I have to fit to the data. Okay. Uh, a lot of deep learning models still get into the millions of parameters. Oh. Okay. A lot, like a, a big jump. But they, they still work. They still work really well. Google famously trained like a billion parameter model. OpenAI announced this new NLP model uh, called GPT-3. And it has 170 and some on billion parameters. So, wow. Yeah, this, 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 this is a massive model. It literally costs, it costs them, uh, excluding all the, the work hours of the individuals and the research they had to do, it costs them like $10 million just to train this model because you need so many computing resources. Mm -hmm. Now that's out of reach for most. Yeah, for sure. Um, but you can still get pretty far with, with just like you know, a low cost $50 budget. Uh, but they had this massive budget and they wanted to achieve this, this massive model. And the model's pretty good. Like it, it does a really convincing job. So this model can basically fake human text. Okay. You, you, if you were to really look at it and read it, you could probably find some inconsistencies. Mm -hmm. So you, what you do is you give it a prompt. You give it a prompt saying like, uh, Today I want to wear, and it tries to complete the rest. It tries to complete the mm -hmm. next paragraph. Almost internally consistent. Like it's almost able to kind of keep a train of thought. It kind of deviates and introduces characters and strange things like that. Uh, but if you were just to skim this, you'd be like, yeah, this is like human English. This. this looks like proper grammar and, and uh, proper English. Uh, it, again, it takes a more and more careful eye to determine that this is fake. It, again, it cost them $10 million. Of course. But it, that, that's today's money in right. today's technology. In three years, it could cost $10,000 and so on and so on. Um, and then, you know, your 16-year-old is able to do this in 2025 mm -hmm. on commodity hardware. So that that's uh, really interesting. How, how do they make money off of this? Are they going to sell it to other companies to use? Will they use it themselves? How do you come out of it on a natural language learning Program. You could argue they want to use this for uh, because because they can they can generate models or they can sort they can generate this fake text hypothetically or theoretically they could also detect fake text kind of inverting oh, okay. so they could use that like a really impressive spam or bot filter mm. to sort of you know discover kind of artificial text on the internet. Yeah, kind of turn it around. Instead of trying to create fake text, they're trying to say, hey, this is fake text. That's right, yeah. Right. yeah. Oh, so that could be then used online to, to find out who these uh, Twitter bots are, to, yeah. uh, to realize if you're getting like a spam email, because, you know, a lot of times you'll get an email even from a friend or something, and at the top of it, it'll say like, you know, this email is suspected as spam, but you know it's not. Because yeah. you know that you, your your friend sent it, and you, you you call them or you text them, you say like, "Hey, did you send that email?" That's like almost become like a part of what we do, because we <laughs> know that the, the, these spams are everywhere, right? So we we go to ourselves and we say like, "Hey, I got to go ask this person, you know, on the phone, did you send me that email before I open it?" Yeah, trust but verify. Yeah, yeah. trust but verify. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and if we can have then an additional layer 
of trust through having a program that can help us detect that, that's like a, a whole nother level of being able to uh, really use technology to the benefit of us not getting uh, attacked uh, through like yeah. malicious uh, uh, programming. Yeah. Um, one other application, I mean, so you mentioned uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek that we're taking AI jobs. Okay. example of AI taking human jobs, a lot of tech companies, or just companies in general, they're, a big cost to them is their support center. So mm-hmm. people call in or yeah. chat or emails, and it costs companies lots of money to deal with these people. Um, so you could imagine that these language models might be really good at replacing a support center worker. Okay. Convincingly talk to the customer, mm-hmm. understand their problem, and then respond with a an actual yeah. or a understandable answer. And then the only cost for them is making the program and maintaining the program. Right, right. And I, I imagine some sort of licensing fee and mm-hmm. OpenAI chooses that route. So I, I think we actually sort of see somewhat uh, the starting stages of this because when you do the online chat, sometimes all you have to type in is your, your query, your question, and it then tries to direct you towards the right place. And it always gives you like, oh, here's a you know FAQ page that uh, might answer your questions. And then you click, no, I want to talk to a representative. Because yeah. you know we still are at that point where it's like, nah, a robot can't do this right now. I need to talk to a human being. But that might not even be the future. You know, we, we might just go straight towards all customer service phone calls being uh, programmed. Would you say so? Sure, yeah. I mean, how do you know when you click, I want to talk to a human, that you're talking to a human? That's a great point. I have no idea. <laughs> right. I, I have no idea. You, they you can't really trust and verify that. <laughs> that's a really good point. So I might have interacted with one of these uh, programmed natural language processing uh, machines in my time. Sure, yeah. Very likely you have, actually. That's crazy. I'm, I'm all about this. I, I am going to try to trip up every customer service rep from now on, try to give them something that their program is just not going to be able to understand, and I'm probably going to alienate a few real human beings along the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, you can't really ask. Well, I guess you could ask, are you a robot? Are you, are you a bot? Yeah, but the bot could be programmed to say... Like, yeah, oh, my, my Google Home, <laughs> that this yeah. this little lady over here on my, you know, on my table over here, she's going to tell me she's a robot. If she's listening right now. I see her lights going up because I said the yeah. G word. <laughs> Very suspicious right now. Um, but then they'll have an answer for that kind of thing. I can say thank you to the robot, and the robot's going to say, like, oh, it's my pleasure. So they're, they're picking up on these things little by little. And I've noticed even um, uh, it, it picks up on speech a lot better than it used to in the past because yeah, I think we all have interacted with, you know, voice-activated uh, command-type things. I remember uh, the, the toy Poochie that came out back in, like, the 2000s. It was this little robotic dog, and you could tell it to sit. Of course, you had to say sit maybe 30 times before it would actually process that. But now I use my cell phone, and I'm too lazy to type, so I'll just do text-to-speech. And it does a pretty good job. And I would say maybe even three years ago, I could not be able to hold a full conversation over text-to-speech. They used to be these garbled up uh, words that just seemed like I was mashing a dictionary together. But through this right, this right. learning, they are able to tell, you know, 
even my accent they can get. And I know my accent's very nasally. So I could say coffee, like I say in real life, and it picks up... What was that? That's coffee. <laughs> what did you say? You know, <laughs> coffee. coffee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're a mean robot, Cameron. Okay. <laughs> so then, uh, you you said earlier that you wanted to talk about uh, artificial intelligence in agriculture, because this is this is like weird to me. I think a lot of people, myself included, think of agriculture as the most holistic process we still have around. Like, yeah, there's probably a lot of science that goes into uh, making crops and how to make crops better. But in my brain, I'm still thinking a farmer waters a plant. How is AI used in agriculture? Sure. So this is this is my idealized tech bro attitude towards <laughs> okay. you know, taking two semesters of food science and thinking I know it all. <laughs> right, all right. So I'll preface this by saying, like, here are some applications that others would say are going to change the world. Okay. But probably in reality, it's a lot less... Uh, interesting or mm-hmm. applicable. So, okay, so you can have yeah, you're right. The, the farmer waters the plant. The farmer is supposed to be a human, but it could be a a robot. Um, you so you ha- imagine you have a robot just like going over the crops, and it can do many things at once. It could uh, detect if it's a weed or not. If it's a weed, it just pounds down, and picks it up, or uh, expels it. Uh, if it detects it's the proper plant, it adds uh, water to the to the the, the soil. Um, that's all using image recognition. It needs to identify what's a correct plant, what's not a correct plant, or what's a, a diseased plant, what's not a diseased plant. So basic image recognition applied to just like watering your fields. Okay. You can also get into the genetic side of things. So genes are really from a computer science point of view, genes are really interesting because it's a massive search space. Mm-hmm. You have like, just like four to the power of you know, 30 million possible genes just for human, um, or, or DNA just for human. Um, but it's also, what's cool is it's not continuous. So uh, how do I describe that? So whereas like a, a parameter in a deep learning model uh, it, it's continuous in the sense that like it could be 2.5, it could also be 2.4 or 2.3 mm-hmm. or 2.25 or whatever. Uh, for genes and DNA, the answer is not going to be halfway between A and C, right? It's going to okay. be an A or it's going to be a C. Um, so it's, it's, it's called, it's a discrete search space. Okay. So it's a specific uh, so it's, value, a it's discrete this, value. Yeah, it's a discrete value. You can't easily use the traditional, you know, um, algorithms that are used for continuous space models. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's been more interesting, and which is why it's so difficult. Uh, so getting into uh, looking at looking at like focusing the sort of AI lens onto DNA, you start to get into protein design. Um, Google has a really good model, probably the state-of-the-art model in uh, protein folding, so they can look at a DNA sequence and predict how it folds, mm. and that's all using a deep learning model. Um, it, there's now, however, it's not just like, hey, let's take lots of proteins and their protein sequences and their um, folded state and try to like map this together. There's a lot of domain knowledge in between uh-huh. there. So they're looking at the uh, attraction of certain amino acids between each other. They're looking at the 
again, I, I don't know all the details, but mm-hmm. they're looking like they're using lots of domain knowledge about how a protein folds inside their model. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so they're, they're yeah, it's not just a computer scientist, just like, you know, in a dark room with the green screen and then the numbers trickle down, they're wearing a hoodie. <laughs> it's not just, they have to work with people who are experts in their own fields in order to get this information. Absolutely, yeah. It, it's it's a, a cross collaboration between um, computer scientists and then the domain experts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could just go the brute force computer science route, but a it historically has not worked, and also b you're wasting time. You you you're having a model relearn things that biologists already know or oh, okay. that are already common to science. So what's the point in relearning? you know, the, the certain structure of amino acid when we know that from chemistry and biology, let's just like use that information and yeah. make the model smarter already. And that like cuts down on how big the model has to be because I could say like this amino acid is this structure, don't deviate from that. Yeah, exactly. Don't deviate from that. Like that's a, a, a constraint. Um, use that in, in your inference. So you can start thinking about like protein folding, and that's really important for not just agriculture, but also medicine and uh, other things. That's the only two applications. <laughs> the the other things, you know. <laughs> I bet it has a lot of uses that, like, even yeah. you probably don't even know that's out there. Probably right. Yeah. What, what, what would you use protein folding for? If we could perfectly predict protein folding. If I could perfectly predict protein folding, I'd, I'd make better bacteria that could make more tasty uh, vinegar. Because they use yeah. bacteria to make vinegar, I would, I would maybe make a, a, a another fake meat product that you know the protein uh, feels more like a real protein in your mouth. And these are just you know I'm thinking just food science applications at this point. I imagine it is all over in every field, probably to make uh, better materials, uh, potentially Bio, like uh, yeah, yeah, right, like uh, things that mimic human skin, um, all right. different kinds of applications. I imagine the field is just so wide that uh, I could barely ever even grasp that concept in my brain. Exactly. So, yeah, so lots, lots, of, lots of applications for that. Now, their model's not, like, a huge step forward, but it is still, the Google model, still state-of-the-art. Uh, and it's, it's pretty impressive. It, it at least offers a another path versus the traditional protein-folding models, which are very computationally heavy uh, and focus more on the domain knowledge. This is... Um, more it includes more data, uh, includes like deep learning models, and so it's a, it's a path forward in that respect. Um, moving into what I'm looking at now, just kind of doing independent research. Um, I really love bioreactors. I've become mm-hmm. obsessed with bioreactors. So, with a bioreactor, so, real fast. Yeah, bioreactor. It's a enclosed container, uh, typically with a cell culture. Inside of it, the cells could be bacteria or yeast or, or fungi um, or even mammalian, and it's highly regulated. So you you introduced uh, media like uh, nutrient rich media. You control the temperature. You control the, the inputs and outputs essentially. Um, it's kind of like a computer actually when I think about it. It's like a computer oh. that you have full control over. And however. The whole point of bioreactor is to either produce a byproduct of the um, of the culture or to actually use the culture for something. Mm-hmm. So, like a, a yogurt culture or sourdough starter, these are examples of yeah. things that would go in bioreactors. Yeah, actually, uh, your sourdough starter is a 
Bioreactor. I got one in the kitchen right now. Yeah, I love that. That's actually like a homemade Bioreactor. Yeah. Now, that's the smallest one, but you can think about um, a large, when you drive by a brewery, those large stacks. Oh, those yeah. Those Bioreactors as well. Mm. So they can scale very small or very high or very tall. Um, so thinking of Bioreactor, the... There's lots of measurements you can take in a bioreactor. There's things like the acidity of the media, um, the level of nutrients in that media, the uh, off-gas, so you can measure carbon dioxide off-gas or Mm -hmm. oxygen um, off-gas. And these are really important to understand how well your culture is doing. Are they happy? Are they growing? Are they dead? Uh, So lots of these measurements coming off and things going in and this data is perfect for a AI application. So you could do a bunch of experiments, sort of understand when you put things in, what comes out, and you can apply AI to that. I'm simplifying it, but apply AI to that, and you can get a better idea of what you should put in to get the maximum out, get a maximum byproduct for the maximum cell culture coming out. Yeah, so instead of uh, me having to do all these tests and be a very knowledgeable person in my field, instead of, you know, relying on the expert in the field to say, yeah, let's bump up the temperature, it is going to have a program that says, like, well, if I want this product, this is what I have, this is my best guess at what we should do, which is more or less what a human does. Right, but a human can only think in so many dimensions at once. So oh, okay. Yeah. The scientist that says, let's increase the temperature uh, and let's decrease the acidity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to um, That's, you know, the, the human can only sort of like, uh, hold on to so many like different parameters to change at once. Okay. Um, the computer can look at all the parameters all at once and mm-hmm. say, okay, this is the best direction to go in. And you can change all those at the same time. Um, and that, that's totally natural for the computer. The computer working in one dimension is... Um, it, it works the exact same way as computer working in 20 or 30 dimensions. Okay. So it, it just has a, a higher capacity to deal with information all at the same time. Which, yeah. going back to what we originally said, it sounds like this computer's a lot smarter than me. It sounds like it's going to take my job away. But you said we have a long, long, long time before you know the robot uprising. Yes, it's going to be a compliment, especially for, for, I don't think scientists have to be worried, it's going to be a compliment where you might sit down at your AI partner mm-hmm. and ask it, hey, I, I just did this experiment, what should I do next? And it comes back with a recommendation, Okay. and you're the human in the loop. You can say, like, no, I don't like that recommendation, or yeah, let's try that recommendation, and you go and do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you're still the, the expert, and, and the actual, like, uh, you're still the master in control of the computer, but it's giving you suggestions. Mm-hmm. Just like Google, it's, when, you, when you Google yeah. search, it's a feedback process. You're like, okay, that didn't really work, let me try something new. Let me mm-hmm. try a different search query. Let me try changing you know, my, my spelling or my, uh, the number of words in my query. That's the kind of idea for scientists working with AI. It's gonna be, let me try this, what does the AI respond with? Yeah, that's okay, let me try again. It's gonna be a feedback loop. Now, I, I absolutely love one thing that you just said. You said uh, you're, you're sitting next to your AI partner. That, mm-hmm. that, to me, is, like, so cool. That's like, you know, when I go up to your desk and I say, like, let, uh, let me bounce some ideas off of you. 
but instead I have this program. So I don't have to ask the program, oh, how was your day? Like, what are you doing after work? I don't have to do that. <laughs> you to be highly efficient, no chit-chat. Efficient, right no more business. small talk, no more elevator yeah. chat. We are just getting to brass tacks, guys. That's right. Yeah, yeah. No, like, you, you might not be asking. I remember coming to you one day and asking you, why doesn't chick, chickpea protein cook the way egg protein yeah. does? Uh, and and that's, that might not be a question you ask your AI partner. Mm-hmm. You might ask your AI partner, you know, what experiment should I run next? Okay. You know, given what I've done before, what should I do next? Or you might ask it, what's the effect of acidity on my culture? Um, or you might ask it just like a, a, a very broad question, be like, show me all healthy plants. Right okay. Now. Yeah. So that those are the questions. They'll be very precise questions, questions that humans aren't good at scaling at. So mm-hmm. a human can't search through all these healthy plant images or all these plants right. and determine if you're not. But a computer can do that in 10 seconds, no problem. So those are the types of questions you're going to ask your AI partner. Oh, well, that is honestly super interesting stuff. Um, that is really all the time that we have today. Uh, we talked really about so many fascinating topics. We talked about, you know, uh, image recognition and how that has developed over the past 10 years. We touched on the topic of creating new works of art and literature through using a machine and how we see AI used in all over the world uh, in so many different parts of our daily lives. This has been such a fascinating conversation, Cameron. I want to thank you so much for sitting down and talking with us today. Thanks, Luigi. It was a pleasure being here. Great conversation.